Well, good morning again. Wanted to go ahead and get our sermon time started. We are still in our series called When You Come Together, which is a walk through 1 Corinthians 11 through 14. I've been especially excited to preach on uh, prophecy and tongues, which is what we're getting back to today. This is uh, week two um, of probably three that we're going to be covering this topic, and I think it'll be very helpful. Even if I cannot convince you uh, to, to kind of agree with my interpretation of this particular text, there's enough here that I think we can agree upon that I hope that we will be greatly edified by it, especially in light of the fact that there are some quite audacious and atrocious abuses of these gifts in our day. So it would be good for us to be warned by texts like these to see how it is that whenever the gifts of prophecy and tongues were to be exercised, how those should look in a church. Last week, I introduced two terms for you that aren't in the Bible but describe viewpoints on prophecy and tongues, a cessationist and continuationist. The cessationist view is that, namely, prophecy and tongues, at least these two gifts, others as well, but these two gifts here in 1 Corinthians 14 have ceased. God does not give these gifts to his church any longer. And so 1 Corinthians 14 and the instruction here no longer applies to speaking in tongues and prophecy. The continuationist view, on the other hand, is the view that all the things that were taught back in 1 Corinthians 14 still apply today, and therefore the instructions still matter as to how those things are to be exercised. I find myself convinced in this particular camp over here, and so that's how I've been preaching. I will be preaching this passage from the viewpoint of a continuationist. But I said this last week, and I'll say it again right now. Not only do I pray that this will provide some helpful instruction on these gifts, even where we might differ on this, I do think that there are some very helpful principles in this passage that apply to the church gathering that will be helpful for all. And so I am excited to preach through this today. I'm going to go ahead and read through our text today. That's 1 Corinthians 14. We'll be in verse 12, which is where we left off last week. And we're going to go all the way through verse 25, Lord willing. I'm going to read through those, pray, and then we'll uh, go back through a few verses at a time, as we usually do. To give your Bibles with you, please follow along with me, starting in verse 12. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? 
But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Let's pray. Lord, we love your word. And we are eager to be instructed by it. I pray that as we open this passage today, that it will be suitably helpful for us, that it will accomplish precisely what it was designed to accomplish, that we would have right thinking about the spiritual gifts, and that we would strive to excel in building up the church. Lord, help us as we walk through this today to learn to love you more, love each other more, and worship you better as a result of this. Keep me from error, I ask, Lord. Please help me to be true, clear, and helpful as I seek to build up the church today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and go back to verse 12, if you will. I'm going to start there this morning. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Paul here is reminding us of the greater purpose of this passage. Now, he certainly wants the Corinthian church to understand how spiritual gifts are supposed to work. He said as much in the first verse of chapter 12. He's been correcting wrong thinking about this gift all along, this whole list of gifts, and he's seeking to prevent both the neglect and abuses of such gifts. But all of this is being done for the higher purpose of ensuring that the church is built up. That's what he's chiefly concerned about here. In fact, it's because God God wants to communicate through Paul that the church is to be built up, that we are getting the instruction on spiritual gifts so we will know how to do that most suitably. That's why he says, strive to excel in building up the church. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't just pause here for a moment to make sure that we are all really realizing how critical this command is. I want you to think about how important it is to build up the church. We are saved according to the gospel. We know that we are all sinners, every one of us. You're born into this world, sinners, and we are sinners by nature and then also by choice. And because we have sinned against God, we deserve his just judgment against us. And Jesus says that those who are judged, those who would die in their sins, are separated from God in hell for all eternity. This is what we deserve as sinners, all of us, each one. And yet God in his infinite goodness sends his son, his only son, to live a perfect life and to die on a cross, bearing God's wrath on himself for all who will ever believe. If you want to have your sins dealt with in Jesus rather than in you, if you want Jesus' good deeds to be judged on your behalf rather than your wicked deeds in the end, you need to repent of your sins and turn in faith to Jesus. It is your only hope. And that's the way that any one of us, every one of us can be saved. But the work of the gospel doesn't end when you get saved. You realize this, don't you? Have you noticed that the story, the redemptive story throughout all of human history didn't come to a close at your conversion? We all need to be reminded from time to time that the universe does not revolve around me. You are not the most important being in the universe. God is, and it is his plan to redeem all things through Jesus. 
Paul's letter to the Colossian church says this, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether in earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus has set forth a redemptive plan and will continue working that plan until the day that he returns. And you need to know that it's a very, very, very common error in history for Christians to think that they are in the final generation of humanity. In fact, we're seeing this all over today. Many people are making proclamations today. Surely the end is near. Sure, it has to be. Because look at what's going on around us. 100% of Christians before us that made that prediction were wrong. It would be wise for us to take stock of that. But one of the things that oftentimes produces that wrong thinking is we think too highly of ourselves. It's hard for me to imagine history after me. But the Lord is doing a mighty work. Jesus will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gospel will be preached in every tongue. We've not reached 60 tongues at the very best. We've not reached 60 languages on our planet. And most of the languages that haven't been reached are out in the middle of nowhere. They don't have the internet, okay? And so we've got a lot of work still to do. 2,000 years has not been sufficient to reach the entirety of this world with the gospel of Jesus. There is still time. But as that time ticks by, we will be building up the universal church by building up our local churches. Every person who newly surrenders his or her life to Christ is another brick laid in this spiritual temple of God. Every language into which the Bible is translated is another hallway. Every conflict between two members at a church that is resolved is another trowel of mortar in that building project. Our songs on Sunday morning are the tunes played while the workers toil. And this is how we are going to win the battles of this age. By the methodical, resolved, and unrelenting upbuilding of each and every local church. You building up your local church is no small thing. It is worthy of us striving to excel. It's age-shaping. Do you ever look at the present state of the world and wonder, like, what are we going to do? Like, every time you turn on the news, it looks like it's just worse and worse and worse. There's no way they're going to make that decision. Oh, tomorrow comes, and here we are. What? What are we to do? Build up the church of Jesus. That's what we're to do. And how is that done? By the seemingly mundane pouring our lives and discipleship energies into where God has placed us, into our local churches, and our local communities. This is it. This is how we win the war. That's the strategy. And it hasn't changed. We didn't hit 2020. And all of a sudden, a new book becomes canonized for this is what you do now. We are to do what the church has been doing all along. We are to strengthen believers. We are to reach the lost. And we are to do this to the glory of God. This is how we glorify God today. And it's the work that we are called into. Paul is making sure that we see this again. Strive to excel in building up the church. He is eager for each of us to employ our gifts to fortify the church of Christ. And after this little pause to make sure we remember that, he's going to return back to teaching on prophecy and tongues. So follow me, if you will, into verse 13. Therefore, 
One who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. I want you to do all things in such a way that you strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, therefore, because I want you to do this in the best possible way, the most efficient and effective way, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. Now, it may have been assumed up to this point, but here it's made clear. Just because a person has the gift of speaking in tongues, that does not mean that he or she has the additional spiritual gift of interpretation. So remember the definition of tongues that I gave last week. I'll recite it again here. Tongues is the supernatural ability to speak in a language unknown to the speaker and to the hearer for spiritual edification. Tongues is the supernatural ability to speak in a language unknown to the speaker and to the hearer. For spiritual edification. And the rest of this paragraph will be Paul's explanation as to why tongues must have an interpretation. Look at verse 14. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Here we see again what is taking place when a person speaks in a tongue. He's praying in spirit, not in mind. He is uttering things unknown to his mind because the language is not known to him. That's so important to see that. He says it over and over here. The person speaking in tongues doesn't know what he's saying. His mind is not working in the same way as when he is speaking intelligible languages that he knows. This, as we see, does not mean, this does not mean that it isn't edifying to the one speaking in tongues. On the contrary, while it is not an intellectual exercise, to be sure, something is taking place spiritually and therefore benefit, benefiting that person. It is building up the individual. Remember, Paul has already said that he wants all to speak in tongues, back in verse 5. And he said that to do so builds up the individual, as it says in verse 4. And he even said that if an interpretation is given, then it accomplishes essentially the same function as prophecy. That again was in verse 5. And so quick note, this comparison, tongues versus prophecy, this comparison again helps us understand more about what Paul has in mind regarding prophecy as well as tongues. As tongues is not fruitful of the mind, prophecy is. Prophecy includes the interpretation of Scripture. This verse 15 continues to say this, what am I to do? Will I pray with my spirit? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. So Paul asks the rhetorical question, what am I to do? If I, if, I, if I speak in tongues, if I have the gift of speaking in tongues, should I only speak in tongues or should I pray? And Paul's very obvious conclusion is do both, do both. Tongues by itself would be insufficient for the spiritual building up of the individual member and for the church. So do both. I think that instruction is very clear. For those who have this gift, first and foremost, only practice tongues in legitimate and biblical ways. But do not neglect the importance of thoughtful prayer and thoughtful singing of praises to God. Interesting comparison. If I, if I just do the tongues thing, my spirit's doing something but not my mind, because I don't even know. My knowledge base 
is not being impacted by that apart from any interpretation. You know, I'm just so grateful for the worship team at our church led by Christian. They care a great deal, and he cares a great deal to make sure that we sing songs that are true, clear, and helpful. But songs that we're not afraid to sing songs that challenge the mind. And this is especially important in days where there are so many junk food Christian songs out there. And when I say junk food, I think that's a good illustration of it. Because there's lots of songs out there that are kind of like snacking on Doritos. Go ahead, have your Doritos, they're, they're fine. But that's not the main meal. You need more than just that, okay? At some point, you need to tell your kids, put the Doritos down, time to eat your, your veggies, right? And I think that that's such a wonderful blessing that we have at our church, that those who lead our worship care to make sure we are singing praise with spirit and mind. We want to engage in thoughtfulness. That's why it's okay sometimes if you sing a song and you're like, I don't know what that word is. Good, go home and study it. Let your mind be stretched and engaged by the singing ministry at the church. It's a good and wonderful thing. The next verses show that Paul has the corporate church meeting in mind. So he's not, this is not just like, hey, when you're only by yourself through these things, he's going to make it clear that he's actually primarily talking about the large church gathering. Look what it says in verses 16 and 17. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, that's the tongue speaking only, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. Now, if you have followed me so far and agree that the speaking in tongues is unknown to the speaker and the hearer, then this is really obvious. Well, of course, this makes total sense. How can a person say, I agree with that? That's what amen is saying. I agree. I affirm. You don't know what the person just said. You can't go, yeah, I, I agree. You shouldn't. If you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen? Now, I take outsider here to refer to another believer present who cannot speak in or interpret tongues. That's what I think is going on. I think outsider is referring to that primarily because it's expected that the person will be able to give thanks to God with you, right? And we're going to see just a few verses later, non-believers will show up in a few verses. Unbelievers, that's the word. I just don't think Paul's addressing that yet. I think the outsider is somebody new to your congregation, a believer visiting, something like that. Someone who doesn't speak or interpret tongues. So they cannot participate in any real way. It may be personally edifying to the individual, but not to the body. And this should remind us of a very self-evident principle that we should employ at church. And the principle is this. Corporate gathering is not for private devotions. Corporate gathering is not for private devotions. Uh, I'm going to read from the commentary by Matthew Henry. He was a 17th century uh, um, reformer, and he actually wrote a, a commentary on this passage, the whole Bible, this passage. Solitary devotions are out of time and place when the church has met for social worship. Okay? Let me illustrate this for you. I remember several years ago, there was a, a woman who, uh, during our worship time, would constantly distract others during worship. We, we'd sing one song, and she'd sing a totally different song. Like, at the same time. Loud. 
prayer would be taking place up here, and the whole church would be engaging in prayer together, and she'd either be singing or she'd be saying things out loud, praying something different to herself. We're really, we're really uh, patient with people who come from different backgrounds and different flow, you know, spiritual uh, flows and stuff like that, so we try to be really generous with that. But one of the pastors eventually very gently confronted, hey, sister, um, I, I just want you to know, I think you're probably mean well, I'm noticing it's distracting a lot of people around you. Can I just ask you to, when you're together, just do the together stuff so that we're all doing the same thing? And her response was just irate. How dare you tell me how I can worship God? You see, the problem there was selfish thinking. The problem is that she may be giving thanks well enough, but the other people are not being built up. Paul is making it clear throughout this entire text. Listen, I, I love when I speak in tongues. It's great for me. He's going to say that again in another couple of verses here. I, I love getting to do it. But when I'm with you, I don't want to do that because I want better for you. I want to think about what's good for everyone else, not just for me. There is plenty of time for individual believers to do individual things. But when you come together, it is time to do together things. Imagine having Thanksgiving dinner, inviting your family from wherever they are to come and gather and they walk to the kitchen buffet, get their plates, and then go to their own rooms to eat. That'd be nonsense. Or what if that same family ended up sitting down at the same table, but then each of them pulled out their phones and began private conversations through text with coworkers, never engaging with each other? That would be absurd. And you know that'd be dysfunctional. And you'd say, hey, hey, phones down. Be together. If you're there Leverage that time for togetherness. That's what it's for. Corporate gatherings are together times. You may have a way that you like to engage in worship, as long as it's approved in the Bible, that you really enjoy getting to do before the Lord and time of prayer, tongues is a personal edification. That's the example given here. But that may not be what's best for the whole body when you gather. And Paul's instruction is be selfless. Care for what's good for the whole body, not just yourself. It's an important principle for us to hold to. Verses 18 through 19, he builds on that same idea. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I'd rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Why? because he wants them to be built up. You can go ahead and go to verses 18 through 19 and see that. 10,000 words in a tongue versus five words with my mind. He picks the five. These instructions, again, are directed for the church gathering. You'll notice he says in church. This isn't small group. This isn't when it's just him and one other buddy who are taking a walk together, Christians. That's great. Lots of ways you can engage and worship with one another and by yourself. This is in church, when I'm there, when I come to, together with you on your Sunday morning gathering, I'd rather speak five words with my mind than 10,000 in a tongue. You see, Paul is not trying to place limits on the Corinthian church out of envy for their extraordinary spiritual gifts. He speaks in tongues more than they do, so his instructions come from the experience of one who knows what he's talking about. But when he's in church, it is better for that church that he speak clear language that can be understood. 
And to what end, what, what, what kind of language does he want to speak? In order to instruct others. He wants to deliver instruction. The Greek word there is katekeso. Katekeso, that's the same word that we use for catechism. Teaching. It's learning together. One of the prime components of the local church gathering is the delivery of instruction. It is important for the church to be taught together. Instruction is to be received by those who come together. There is to be exhortation, to be sure, admonition, certainly, consolation, of course, and instruction. If you sit under word-centered preaching week in and week out, you should be learning things. If you ever find yourself at a church where you just go week after week after week, I don't, I'm, I don't feel like I'm learning anything here. That might warrant a good conversation with you and the preacher, pastor at that church. What's going on? Why is it, why is it that maybe I'm not learning anything here? Is it the preaching? Is there something about the way that I'm engaging with it? Is learning matters. This is why we will preach through passages just like this one, just like this one, because you need to be instructed on doctrine. I know this is the time of year where we're supposed to pause and just go, okay, Christmas sermons, uh, be excited about the light of the world, Jesus coming, and we love doing that. We, we do that occasionally, just pause and just celebrate those wonderful things just for encouragement, just to go out and celebrate and that kind of thing. But we need instruction. We need to learn things we didn't know before or be challenged about things to think about them according to the word. You and I need to be instructed on doctrine. And that will always be a part of good preaching. He continues into verse 20, and this is kind of a summary. Starts, this is the beginning of his summary of this teaching on prophecy in tongues. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. Paul knows that what he's saying here will take maturity. Apparently, the Corinthian church has been abusing this gift. In what way? Although he doesn't say it outright, based on his warnings, it sounds like some people were operating out of selfish motives. They were thinking wrongly about their own ability to exercise certain gifts or others' ability to exercise certain gifts. But it also sounds like others were putting up with that craziness out of a childish fascination with tongues. Listen, don't be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Now, real quick on the infants in evil. That's just a helpful little drop he puts that there. This, this agrees with other portions of Scripture that say something similar. I used to think when I was a young man, uh, fresh in my uh, life as a believer, living in the world as an adult, uh, I used to be kind of embarrassed when I was around my, especially my Marine Corps buddies, when I was in the Marines, uh, living with guys like that was like being in the locker room all the time. And I remember hearing jokes sometimes. I didn't understand the joke. I could tell it was sexual. Didn't know what it meant. Or somebody referring back to um, a raunchy scene in a movie. And I remember thinking at that time, I felt less because everybody else knew something I didn't know. And I kind of wanted to study the culture, so that I could engage more. I knew more what they knew. I understood the jokes and the terminology. and the. But that was folly because we should be infants in evil. It is good to be ignorant of evil. 
One of the charges that uh, homeschoolers, we are a homeschool family, oftentimes get is, how are your kids going to know how to socialize with the culture? I don't want my kids to be anything like the culture. So that works out great. They won't know any of the jokes. Yup. They won't, they won't learn about sex in sixth grade. You're right. They'll have to learn from us with the word of God opened. Even as adults, we should be infants in evil. It is good for us to be ignorant of wickedness. But in your thinking, be mature. In your thinking, be mature. Here's the principle that's being laid out here for us. And it's a bit of a warning. It is not difficult to get immature believers to approve of certain church practices. It is not difficult to get immature believers to approve of certain church practices. You try that on with me. Sunday worship is not for tricks and games. It is not for performance and showmanship. It is neither a concert, nor a circus, nor a TED Talk. It is not for entertainment. It is where the army of the Lord is prepared for battle. You know, don't you, that many churches do all sorts of entertaining things on Sunday. I've spoken with many pastors, fellow brothers that I love. I know they love the gospel. They're believers. They've planned all kinds of innovative expressions of arts and entertainment on the stage during Sunday worship. Even though the Bible never, ever once gives permission to such things. And I've asked before plenty of times, why? Why, would, why are you doing that? What, what, what has compelled you to make that decision? And the answer almost always is, the people love it. That's why. Pragmatism. People like when we entertain them. Oh, really? But there's a problem there. Because we are prone to childish thinking. That is especially amused by things that aren't necessarily good for us. And we are to be mature in our thinking. There are many things that a church could plan on a Sunday morning. They could just decide to do. And while it may be exciting to the observer, they do not encourage maturity in the church. They don't take the worship of our Lord seriously. Children are easily amused by things that are not best for them. Have you ever let your kids decide what to eat for dinner? Have you ever let your kids decide when they get to go to bed? Have you ever let your kids decide what they get to do for fun whenever they want? No good parent would ever do that. Why? Because they're not mature enough yet to make the wisest and right choices long term. We are prone to this if we're not cautious as believers. It is possible for a whole church full of believers to go, we love that idea of the magician on Sunday showing tricks. Guys, just because believers think that's a good idea doesn't mean it is. Don't be children in your thinking. Be mature. But tongues are so interesting. Isn't it fascinating? It doesn't matter. It's not building you up. Have some broccoli. Verse 21. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Paul here cites the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. I'm going to read the passage in Isaiah. It's, it's a citation from Isaiah, but it's also referenced in a few other places in the law. But I want to read this one to you in Isaiah 28. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue the Lord will speak to this people, to whom he has said, this is rest, give rest to the weary, 
and this is repose, yet they would not hear. For the Jews, their inability to understand God's word proclaimed was evidence that they were under God's judgment. Do you remember the commissioning of Isaiah? I just read Isaiah 28, and that's what's being referenced in 1 Corinthians 14. Isaiah, when he was commissioned, when the Lord sent Isaiah, Isaiah said, what do you want me to do? I want you to go to rebuke and call the people to repentance. And Isaiah's like, okay, for how long? Until you die or until they repent. Well, will they repent, Lord? No. So just keep, until I, until I die? Yep. That's a successful ministry. Call them to repentance. They will not listen. Even though the word of God was being proclaimed to them, the, f- the fact that they could not discern it was judgment from God. And eventually, foreign nations would even conquer and take over. And this kind of thing happened multiple times throughout Jewish history. And that's why Paul says this very next thing. Keep this in mind with what he says next, and we'll connect these two pieces together. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. Now, I'm going to admit, for many times that I read through this passage, especially as a younger believer, I was like, I felt almost like he accidentally switched it. Like, it almost was like, whoa, he... No, no, I think what he meant to say is tongues is something believers do, not, not non-believers. And prophecy, preaching to non-believers is still a good thing. I kind of just assume, what's going on here? <laughs> but I think this is here exactly as it's supposed to be. Why is tongues a sign for unbelievers? Because when God's word being proclaimed is not understood, it is a sign of judgment on those who at first refuse to understand and then are made unable to understand. So it is a sign of judgment. That's why it says tongues, not tongues and interpretation. Because tongues, remember, is not understandable, unintelligible. Unintelligible speaking is a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. It is a judgment on those who cannot understand what is being said I want to read for you commentator J.P. Lang, who wrote on this exact passage. He says this, When God speaks unintelligibly, he exhibits himself not as one that is opening his thoughts to his faithful ones, but as one who is shutting himself up from those who will not believe. This is almost exactly what Jesus says when asked why he speaks in parables. Do you remember when Jesus was asked by his disciples, hey, why are you speaking in parables? And the modern quick answer is like, oh, to make people understand. They're illustrations. They help us understand stuff. That is not what Jesus says. He says the opposite. He says what this verse says and what Isaiah 28 said. Look what Jesus said in Matthew 13. This is why I speak to them, the crowds, in parables. Because seeing, they do not see. And hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. Jesus speaking in parables was for believers to understand and non-believers to not understand. They were to make things clearer for us and muddier for them. That's the idea. It was a proclamation of judgment on those who even after Jesus gave the 
parable still could not put the pieces together. And this is why tongues should not be exercised in church without interpretation. Because to hear God speaking without being able to discern what he is saying is a sign of judgment. It is not for believers. So to illustrate it, if I were to begin speaking in tongues that you don't know, no interpreter present, if I were to do that, you would hear, presumably, words of God proclaimed and not understand them. And that's a symbol of judgment. And you are not to be judged. So therefore, don't speak the indiscernible things to the people of God unless an interpretation is there so that they can understand and know that they are not under judgment. Know that we are not under judgment. On the other hand, prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. Because prophecy, as we've already seen in this chapter, instructs, encourages, consoles, and builds up the church. Remember, he's, he's argued, that's what he's been arguing this whole time. I wish that everyone would prophesy because that builds up the church so much. That's the whole point. So that's why prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. That preaching is designed for the people of God. Next, Paul gives a hypothetical example to illustrate the wisdom of what he's been saying. The example he's about to give here is just to try to help us see an illustration of what would this look like if we were to push it to its extents. He says this, If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, they will, will they not say that you are all out of your minds? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters. He is convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he'll worship God and declare that God is really among you. There's some awesome stuff here we're going to unpack. And this is where we're going to conclude today in this, this paragraph. First, just quickly note, again, when the whole, if therefore the whole church comes together. So you're with me. You're seeing this is not just your small group. This is Sunday morning. This is church gathering. The whole church comes together. That's, the, that's the, the, the setting in mind for Paul's hypothetical. If an outsider or unbeliever enters, they are not helped by the exercise of tongues. They're not helped. It doesn't benefit them. But prophecy, on the other hand, if everyone was preaching, it is of great benefit to the hearer. Even the unbeliever can be helped by that. I want to make two points as we close. The first one I'll spend way more time on, and then I'll conclude with a, a little bit shorter point. The first point is this. Tongues is not for evangelism. I don't know how someone could conclude that from 1 Corinthians 14. Tongues is not for unbelievers. It's not for them. It's judgment for them. Indiscernible language is preached is, we just saw that, judgment. That's what it's for. It's not to help draw unbelievers. It is judgment on unbelievers. In fact, there's a view that proposes that the whole point of the spiritual gift of tongues was to reach non-believers who speak a different language than the missionary. So the missionary, Acts 2 is the example often given, uh, they see people who speak a different language. I don't know how to speak Russian, but they're Russians. And then the Spirit comes upon them so they can speak Russian. They hear the gospel and come to saving faith. It's, it's for judgment. It even says right here, if, so, if an outsider or unbeliever enters, they'll say you're out of your minds. If they see speaking in tongues, they'll go, you guys are crazy. 
They won't go, oh, Russian, you speak my language. Oh, no, you're crazy. In fact, if the non-believer were to hear that, that's their only reply. Madness. And this is exactly what the unbelievers in the crowd said in Acts 2. Last week I told you that I'd come back to this, so I'm going to do that right now. There's an instance of this playing out in the New Testament, and it's the day of Pentecost, the, the birth of the Christian church where the Spirit of God is poured out on the believers in Jerusalem. If you want to follow me and go to Acts 2, you can do that. I'm going to spend a couple minutes there to try to explain what I think is going on and how we harmonize that with 1 Corinthians 14. Jesus had just ascended into heaven after giving the instructions to his disciples to wait in Jerusalem. So 120 of these believers gather in an upper room, and they're waiting for something to happen, the Spirit to be given. They don't know what, I don't think that they have any real expectations of what it's going to be like. God pours out his Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. That's a, the, the feast, the festival of weeks, when Jews from all over the nation would still have been present, from all over the world, would still have been present from the Passover, very likely. It's probably a very similar uh, group that's there at the time. And this is what happens when the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So very clearly, there's a supernatural something happening. And what's the first thing we see? Galileans who cannot speak other languages all of a sudden now can. That's not a question. That is clearly taking place. Speaking in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance in this supernatural Spirit-enabled moment. And the throng of people around them who come from a variety of different nations and speak a variety of different languages are, are gathered around and they hear this preaching, this proclamation coming from these Galileans speaking in tongues. And it says this in Acts 2, 7 through 8. And they, the crowd, were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? So... We see that these disciples are speaking in tongues that previously unknown to them by the Spirit. And now the crowd is amazed that they hear the tongues in their own language. It's crazy. But not everyone in that crowd understood the disciples. That chapter tells us that there's a third group present. There's the disciples, there's the soft-hearted people, and the third group are the hard-hearted ones. Speaks of them in verse 13. But others, mocking, said, they're filled with new wine. They're drunk. That's the charge. You notice that they level the same charge against the disciples that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 14. I think all of what's being instructed in chapter 14 here applies to Acts 2. I don't, that is a unique event, but we don't go, well, all the rules can be broken in Acts 2. I think that this all applies there, and that's exactly what happens. The people go, oh, you're crazy. So three groups, those speaking in tongues, those hearing in their own language, and those who can't tell anything, just call them all drunk. Now, there are several questions about this exact event that I've had personally over the years, and uh, you may or may not have these same questions, but Questions like these are not authoritative, but this is my line of thinking, and so I'm trying to figure these passages out. First question is this. Why were the hearers who heard in their own language, why were they amazed? Why were they astonished? One of the words there in that passage is perplexed. 
I mean, those are the words used for when Jesus heals a dead person, raises them up. They're astonished. They know something miraculous has just happened. Something divine just took place. Why? I told you that this is, a, this is an international festival. It's the Jewish religious festival. People from all over the Roman world, uh, speaking a whole bunch of different languages, all come. They know that everyone there is going to be Hebrew background, probably in, in Jerusalem, or, or there might be Greeks, probably speaking Aramaic as the main language. They know this. This isn't surprising. This might be similar to if you and I, a small group of people, were to go to Beijing for the Winter Olympics upcoming We'd expect that most of the people will be speaking Chinese as we're in a Chinese-speaking country. But if you and I were to see one Chinese man get onto a box and begin announcing the start times for the next event in English, we wouldn't go, miracle! We'd go, oh, that, apparently that guy can speak English. That's pretty helpful. I don't think that we would be astonished, perplexed, or amazed in that same way. A second question that I have is this. Why would the mockers think that disciples are drunk? Have you ever seen one person speaking in a language you don't know and another person hearing that same language that they, they, they do know? You don't know the language, but they speak it. Have you, ever, have you described that experience as drunkenness? Is that how that looks to you? What is, what is madness about that? Again, these questions are not authoritative, but I, don't, I couldn't square Acts 2 with some of these challenges. Anytime I've seen someone speak a different language, I go, man, I wish I could do that. I don't go, if it's not English, they're drunk. I mean, we're Americans, but, <laughs> right? So the, these things have been in my mind. I'm trying to figure out what's going on and then square this with 1 Corinthians 14. How in the world are these guys allowed to speak if there's not an interpreter present? That was the challenge. Well, this is what I think is going on. Just as the disciples are being supernaturally given the ability to speak in unknown tongues, I think that the hearers are being granted the supernatural ability to hear, interpret, understand what is being said. So I think two gifts are happening at the same time. You may have noticed that the thing that was so amazing to them was not the Galilean speaking. Did you see that in that text there? When I read that to you in chapter 2, verse 8, when the people in the crowd hear the tongues spoken, they don't go, whoa, how can they speak my language? They go, how is it that I hear in my native language? The miracle proposed by the hearer was the hearing. We already saw that the speaking is a miracle, yes. But they don't say that. They say, how do we hear? Again, if you and I were over somewhere in another country and we heard someone speaking in English, we wouldn't go, how am I able to hear in English? We'd go, I speak English. I know how to hear. Apparently that guy speaks English. Or at the very least, we'd go, how? How is that guy able to speak English? Maybe. I think that the Lord is blessing two separate gifts at the exact same time for this important moment. And what's so astonishing to them is that they know that what is coming out of the mouths of the disciples is not their own language. And yet they're hearing, they're understanding them in their own language. That word for hearing can be understanding. It's used multiple times in the New Testament to say the same thing. Hearing, understanding, and actually you might even have a footnote that says that that word means hearing with understanding. If you were to be in the presence of someone speaking a different language, uh, French, if you don't speak French, one you've never studied, one, one you don't know, and all of a sudden the Spirit of God were to come upon you and you were given the supernatural ability to discern that language, to interpret it. 
that would be worthy of calling it astonishing, amazing, perplexing. I think that's what's happening to the hearers in the crowd on the day of Pentecost. And therefore, it would then make sense why the mockers are making their accusations of drunkenness. They can tell that language is unintelligible. That is an indiscernible language. It is like, just like Paul said earlier, it's an indistinct sound. It's like a bugle that's not getting people ready for battle. It's like a lifeless instrument that gives indistinct notes. That's what they're hearing. And so they go, that's crazy. They know it is indiscernible, but the Spirit has not opened their ears to hear. And I don't think this is the only time something like this has happened in the New Testament. Jesus was standing probably in front of this very same crowd in Jerusalem after the triumphal entry in John chapter 12. Some may have gone home, some may have come along. It's very likely that that crowd is filled with the same combination of languages and people that Jesus is speaking amongst in John chapter 12. In fact, in that chapter, it says that Jesus is surrounded by Greeks. That is not just the Hebrew Jews there. It's people from all over the place. That's who he's surrounded by. That's who he's in the presence of. And Jesus says that he wants to glorify his Father's name. And all of a sudden, a sound comes from heaven. And God speaks an authoritative voice to his Son and says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again, his name. I have glorified my name, I will glorify it again. And this is what it says in verse 29 of that chapter. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. In the very next verse, Jesus says, This voice has come for your hearing, your sake, not mine. God spoke. Some people heard thunder. Is that thunder? Others heard the voice and assumed it was an angel. Jesus doesn't go, oh, sorry, we're just chatting. I'm sorry if you overheard. Jesus is like, that's not for me. That's for you. Why? Because the elect in the crowd were served by hearing the voice of God supernaturally, while the non-elect in the crowd were under judgment for their refusal to believe. The same event produces both judgment and proclamation of truth. So I think in the case of Acts 2, the miracle is both in the speaking and the interpretation of tongues. And the only ones given the spiritual ability to interpret or hear the disciples in their native language are those whom the Holy Spirit is convicting of sin and who will get saved and baptized that very day. That's what happens at the end of that chapter. Now, you might disagree with my interpretation of this event, but one thing is crystal clear. What the disciples were communicating to the crowds on the day of Pentecost is the same thing that's being proclaimed to the people in 1 Corinthians 14, the gospel. And this proclamation is for the salvation of the elect in the crowd and for the judgment of the non-elect in the crowd, just like it is here. And so I think that those are the same thing. Final point as we close up here. It's a principle that comes from this whole text and specifically in this paragraph. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. The final point is this. What's good for the believer is good for the non-believer. What's good for the believer is good for the non-believer. About five years ago, I had a watershed moment with a bunch of other pastors. I was in a gathering with dozens, 50-something maybe, uh, Utah pastors. 
pastors of churches around here. And I was really grateful to be a part of that gathering because it was clearly brothers in Christ who love the Lord and they love their congregations. They love the believers in their lives and they love the lost people of their community. And they just wanted to strengthen believers and reach the lost to the glory of God. It was awesome to be in the midst of these brothers. But at that same time, we had very different churches. I felt very alone. And I was trying to figure out, what is it? Because I don't doubt their love for God, their love for the Bible. I don't doubt their love for believers and for the lost. I love these brothers. And yet we would make very, very different choices with our churches. We were methodologically very different. To put it simply, their churches were very seeker-driven kind of churches. And then somebody said something. I don't, I don't even remember exactly what it was that was said that just, it finally clicked for me. It was, it was literally, it was like a Copernican revolution for me as a pastor. It became clear that the point of departure for us was that these brothers believed sincerely that what was best for the non-believers in their community is different than what is best for the believers in their churches. They believed that there was a distinction between best for non-believer and best for believer. And so therefore, their conclusion was a selfless one. They thought, well, we can put down our preferences. I'll take less for me so they can have more. Paul actually said something similar already, didn't he? Listen, I, I speak tons of tongues, but when I'm with you, I'd rather instruct you then me be privately built up because I want you to get benefit. That same selfless desire is even in Paul. So if it is true that believers need something different than non-believers, then it would make sense why we should gear our churches in two distinctive ways. Brothers and sisters, look at what it says. If all prophesy, each person who steps behind a pulpit on a Sunday morning to proclaim authoritatively, with the word of God open. And an unbeliever or an outsider, the church is already there, believers are already there. Again, I think the outsider is probably like a guest believer. And then an unbeliever enters. Everyone benefits. An unbeliever or an outsider enters. He's convicted by all, called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. That's the result Brothers and sisters, there is not a great disparity between what believers and non-believers need. This is why if I was preaching, and I've said this kind of thing before, but if I were to all of a sudden see the back doors open up and the seats to flood, the back four rows to be filled up with people that I knew certainly were non-believers, I wouldn't go, oh, time to change the sermon. Why? Because you need to hear the gospel proclaimed over you all the time. And non-believers need to hear the gospel proclaimed all the time. Do you know what non-believers need to see when they come into church? People worshiping their God in spirit and in truth. That's what they need to see. And what do you need to do when you gather together in church? Worship God in spirit and in truth. You need a healthy diet of the word and instruction and admonishment and encouragement and consolation. That's what they need too. So such a helpful point for me. Help me understand and actually be slower to judge and give the point of, I think this is where it is. In a moment here, we're going to take communion. And when we do so, this is yet another time that we want to invite people to the table. If you are an outsider, if you are are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, but you're not a member of this church, you're welcome to partake of communion with us. But if you're not a believer, 
and have not yet been called to account by all and had the secrets of heart disclosed and fall on your face in worshiping God, if you have not yet come to that point, then this taking of communion, which is a declaration that I believe these things to be true, then that will be a detriment to you and not a help. We want for you to be able to join us. We want for you to repent of your sins and turn in faith to Jesus. We want for you to hear the proclamation of the gospel, not as an unbeliever, but as a believer. We want for you to celebrate the Lord Jesus with us and to get on board with building up the church, striving to excel and building up the church until he returns. If you're not a believer today, we'd ask that you just wait. If you are, I'm going to pray and close our time here and invite you to come up to the tables and then Pastor Luke is going to close our time together here with communion. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and your word. We love that you have gifted it to us, that you have preserved it for us. We pray that you would keep us from error in our thinking. Help us to to use our minds rightly as we think of your scripture. Lord, thank you so much for what communion represents. Thank you that because Jesus gave of his body and blood, he died for our sins, that we can have peace with you, eternal life. I pray that for anyone here who's not a believer, that they would find a believer and talk to them, ask them questions, open the Bible, pray to you and cry out to you for salvation, that they would turn from any other vain God or idol in their lives, repent of that, and faithfully serve the Lord Jesus until they see him face to face along with us. Lord, I pray for my believing brothers and sisters here that they would be edified, they'd be built up, that our church would be doing what Jesus told us to do from the very beginning. So Lord, help us to do that. Help each and every one of us to strive to excel in building up this church. And bless the time that we have in communion, Lord, that we would remember what this symbolizes and proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.